When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. I don't think you can truly change for the better in a lasting, meaningful way unless it is driven by self-acceptance. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Be inspired by women from across the globe. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams? What I know to be true is that women were always meant to lead. And by shining a light on those doing it well today, my hope is that more women will find their own voice. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco, and it's so good, as always, to be here with all of you. Before I welcome my very special guest this evening, I want to remind you to stay with us during the breaks, where you'll hear from our exclusive watch team of corporate partners, bringing you news and education from their industries. We continue to be so grateful for their support and the valuable content that they bring to the show each and every week. If you're interested in being a part of the show, feel free to interview Taylor at womentowatch.net for more information. And don't forget to download the podcast uh, each week so you never miss a show and sign up for our newsletter as well, where you can read all about who's coming up next and any events that we may be participating in. So now I'm very honored and excited to welcome to the show the very first lay president of Holy Family University here in Philadelphia, Dr. Ann Prisco. Ann, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sue. It's a real pleasure to be with you, and what a special time of year to have this conversation. Thank you. I agree. You're you're exactly right. It's a it's a wonderful week, you know, that forces us all to kind of pause and and be grateful and thankful for our blessings. Um, I, as always, want to start out with your background and learn a little bit more about who the little Anne Prisco was. Um, growing up in Brooklyn, uh, the daughter of immigrants uh, from Italy, uh, your dad. wonder if you can just start off by describing the neighborhood for me uh, that you grew up in in Brooklyn. Sure, and thank you. And um, and I know that um, some of your family shares the same ancestry, but as I say, um, many of us, regardless of where our parents came from, when we are 
first or second generation, there's definitely a different imprint we have about where our families are from and our ancestors. And I think the further you get away from that, it's not as strong. I can see what my sons, like their experience is very different than mine was. So to start, I was born in Brooklyn. Uh, my father came here in the early 50s. He was a tradesman. He made terrazzo. So terrazzo was a flooring. So he immediately had jobs in construction and he joined the union. So um, growing up was in a very working, middle-class, safe Brooklyn neighborhood. Um, honestly, most of the people that lived in my neighborhood were um, either Italian or Jewish. Maybe we had we let some Irish and Polish in for good measure. Um, <laughs> that was very nice of you. <laughs> thank you. And, and, you know, for the most part, this is a generalization, but, you know, the Catholic kids mostly went to the local Catholic elementary school and the Jewish kids went to the public school. And um, there was lots and lots of kids on the block. This was the 50s and 60s, so we never wanted for someone to play with. And like we've discussed, you know, we went out in the morning and we played outside all day. We came in when your parents said it was time for dinner. Yeah. So um, it was a very safe environment. It was definitely a protected environment, which, of course, I didn't understand when I was a young child. And um, it was it was very comfortable. So when people talk about oh, growing up in cities or what was it like, I always say, you know, maybe we locked our doors at night. But we, you know, we, we were a very protected, comfortable area. You could play outside. You didn't worry about, you know, people think cities, Brooklyn, did you worry? We never worried about being outside or playing outside or, you know, getting on a bicycle and driving, going 10 blocks to get to your friend's house. It was all considered safe. Yeah. Um, the difference for me was, you know, many of this, my friends, their parents weren't necessarily immigrants, and my, and my father was. So the addition for me was growing up with a parent whose first language isn't English, so he had one of those, you know, what they do in those like awful Italian commercials where they try and mimic Italian accents. That's sort of what my <laughs> father sounded like. And it was interesting to grow up um, as the child of an immigrant and see the way people treated him. And so nowadays when I hear about other immigrant populations, it's in many ways similar stories about, you know, being conflicted about are you proud of your ancestry or are you embarrassed by it because your parents don't necessarily speak or look or dress like the other kids' parents do, um, especially if you're around people whose parents are professional, you know, put suits on versus their construction workers, right? So there was mm -hmm. all of these different levels of sort of awareness you had um, and not necessarily you were proud, you know, so maybe you spoke the, the Italian at home, but when you left the house, you spoke English, right? There was, it was a different time back then. And, um, and I think sometimes very, very unkind to immigrants. There wasn't much tolerance. If you didn't speak the language, if my father was in a bank and someone asked him a question and he didn't understand, people weren't necessarily kind or gracious about it. They were rude, and it's like you're less than. Mm. So um, so I sort of grew up with that sense of how important it was for people to understand each other because we all have different experiences that transcend, 
maybe what's visible, like your race and ethnicity, to your immigration status, which, you know, your, your status of what your family is, right? Or your first generation, second generation, that makes a difference in your experience of, quote unquote, being American. You know, and I'd love to ask you your opinion on whether that that is so innately a human thing to do. So be fearful of people that are not like you, perhaps not be as kind. And it has been happening since the beginning of time. Is it something that you think we can change or will change the more diverse we become, which is is obviously happening and, and certainly here in the United States? Yes, and, and access to each other and knowledge of each other, because what I'll always say is it's all about getting to know who for you is the quote-unquote other. So once someone's not an other, but an actual name and a person, that adds a whole different dimension to your understanding. So um, so for me, the, the broadening of my experience was when I went to a large public high school and kids came in from Boston from all over Brooklyn. So now there was every color, race, creed, religion that you could think of in this huge public high school. And we had to figure out how to get along and how that was my first experience of like actually having black friends. And um, and back then in our neighborhood, if you were Latinx, you were probably Puerto Rican and having Puerto Rican friends, you know, and kids that grew parents were from Jamaica and the islands, you know. That was so interesting as a kid who grew up mostly around people that were like me, and now I'm a teenager and I'm experiencing something a little different. So those people aren't others anymore when it's like, oh, it's Ruby and her mom that live in the projects. And I had never been in projects before, but I got to go to her house and, you know, her apartment and be in the projects and experience that. So I wasn't that wasn't unfamiliar to me anymore. So I do think that um, it's human nature to to not be comfortable or maybe even be suspicious and not open to people or to things you don't understand. So how important is it that we kind of force ourselves to be in these different boxes and to be maybe around people that are in communities where we don't really understand those people because they're different than us? Because once you get to know them, they're people. And, and well, then the, it becomes this, about yeah. that rather than they're in Correct. this sort of stereotypical box we put them in. Yeah. And not only that, internally, they're the same, right? They're right. The, yearning, yearning for the same things. I think it's something really important to discuss with our children and talk about in school, the, more about the commonality. So um, we're going to go into our first break. I'm speaking with Ann Prisco, the president of Holy Family University. Stay with us for our watch team and we'll be right back. Now, the women to watch, Health Watch. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. For over 40 years, the American Cancer Society has designated the third Thursday in November as the Great American Smokeout Day, giving smokers support and resources to quit smoking. Why? Because nicotine is one of the strongest and deadliest addictions, and quitting is hard. Lung cancer, the leading cause of cancer death in men and women, and more than 75% are smokers. 
This morning on Your Radio Doctor, we spoke with two internationally recognized leaders, Dr. Ruth Talsinger, President and Chief Science Officer of the COPD Foundation, and Dr. David Benino, co-founder of the COPD Foundation, and until 2020, the number one researcher in COPD in the entire world. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, the number four cause of death in the U.S. Different forms include emphysema, chronic bronchitis, Patients are short of breath, may have chronic cough, decreased exercise capacity. It also increases the risk for lung cancer. Smoking is the most common cause, but up to 25% have never smoked. Maybe they were exposed to secondhand smoke, air pollution, occupational gases, or have a genetic predisposition. Smoking is associated with other diseases, including the secondhand smoke that can aggravate or cause asthma, especially in children, Berger's disease, bad circulation leads to amputation of feet and legs. Smokers are 30 to 40% more likely to develop type 2 diabetes, heart disease, stroke, decrease in fertility, more miscarriages, stillbirths, low birth weight babies, malformations, sudden infant death, increased risk for multiple cancers, lung, mouth and throat, bladder and kidney, esophagus, stomach, colorectal, and now pancreas. Vaping, a battery-operated device that heats a liquid or gas that has nicotine, flavoring, glycerol, creating an aerosol that simulates tobacco smoke, initially designed to help smokers transition to quitting. Unfortunately, we've seen a sharp upward trend in use among middle and high school students. 2019, we saw an acute respiratory illness that could be severe or life-threatening. One cartridge could have more nicotine than an entire pack of cigarettes. Some contents break down into cancer-causing agents. Plus, it's another source of secondhand smoke. So if you have the urge for a cigarette, buy the ones made of chocolate or bubblegum. Hear the entire show on YourRadioDoctor.com. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, Talk Radio 1210, WPHT. Welcome back to the show. I'm joined this evening by Dr. Ann Prisco, who is the president of Holy Family University. And we were talking in the first segment, you know, about the importance um, really and how much more interesting it is to be around people of diverse backgrounds. And I know how important that is to you, Anne, as one of your, I'll say, goals as president um, of the university. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. I wanted to ask you a question. When you look at your life today and that of your siblings, do you think that your dad's dream has come true, has been fulfilled when you think about why he decided to come to this country? Absolutely. I mean, my father passed in 2000, so he hasn't been with us for a while. But um, I guess one of the moments for me is that my father did see me get my Ph.D., my doctoral degree, and he passed away three months after I got it. So my sons were eight and nine years old. My parents helped a lot during those years because I was working and working on a Ph.D. at Columbia University at the same time. So husband, parents, very supportive, even my in-laws, my husband's parents were very supportive. And um, I absolutely know that he felt, um, I think it was hard for him because he was always um, the immigrant in a family where now his children pretty much spoke English and were doing things and experiencing things that he couldn't relate to. So I think mm. about that and how hard that is for our parents who are those immigrants and that transition generation, right? You see your kids kind of getting away from you because they're doing the things you want them to do, 
but you don't understand them or you can't relate to them, right? They never went to college. They don't, they didn't understand what my brother and I were experiencing. But at the same time, that's exactly what they wanted for us, right? And they also got to see the more traditional things. You know, we both got married. We both had children. Each of us have a son yeah. named after my father. So, you know, there were things oh, that that's we did nice. in the tradition that I think. That will always make them yes. happy. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Especially in the Italian yeah. family. Yeah. So, um, so I do think, thank you for that. I mean, I could bring tears to my eyes. I do think that, um, um, you know, he was, he, it was hard for him, but I think he felt very proud of his children and, and his grandchildren. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your mom and your relationship ah, with her. How did you, she I do speak more about my father? My mom was just she yeah. was the solid rock. So she was born in this country of Sicilian parents, grew up speaking Italian at home. Um, was kind of a sort of she had her own like we know about many women, right? People in general. My mother had her own strong ideas. And the family never anticipated that any of the kids were going to go to college. She was one of seven. They lived in downtown Brooklyn in a little ghetto. You know, down, it was, back then it was an Italian ghetto. My, my grandfather was a longshoreman on the docks. And my mother was five of seven. And when it was time to go to high school, she wanted to learn bookkeeping because she liked numbers and she thought that would be interesting work. And my grandmother said to her, her mother, um, no, if you go to high school, because it was optional still back then. She said, if you go to high school, you're going to have to learn how to sew so you can be a seamstress. And my mom didn't want to do that. So her way of rebellion, she just didn't go to high school. <laughs> and she, 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 she just didn't go. go. <laughs> so she stayed at home. My grandmother was happy to have the extra hands to cook and shop and prepare meals and do the laundry every day. And then when she was 18, yeah. she went in to work in Manhattan. And she worked in the garment district, but she was not a seamstress. She did something like a finisher or something. And she was very proud of the fact that she wasn't a seamstress. Um, so the craziness is, right? So she didn't get to study what she wanted to study. Um, and I'll always say there's a big difference between being wise and being educated. Um, my parents were wise mm -hmm. people. They just didn't have the opportunity because of the family situations to go to school. But they read the newspaper every day. My mom was a big reader. She didn't like TV. Um, I can remember her. Uh, my aunts would lose patience with her because they would talk almost every day. And they all watched soap operas. And my mom had no interest in soap operas. She had no patience for them. So, um, yeah. so she was a very kind of traditional in those days, right? Like a homemaker, but also went to work when she needed to. So if my dad was laid off because there was a slowdown in construction, she would go do temp work in Manhattan to make sure, you know, she kept the family whole and we were able to pay our bills. Um, we were thinking yeah. about this. Do you remember when they used to hire people for Christmas? Like Macy's would hire everybody would do Christmas help. Like I can remember yeah. she would decide that that's what she would do so she can make extra money for the holidays, right? So yeah. she was yeah. just a very quiet, smart, constant force who also really believed that I needed to go to school and I needed to be able to take care of myself. Right. Well, I know that, you know, you shared with me how from the very beginning you um, had a desire to teach. And teaching doesn't always necessarily mean being a teacher in a classroom at a school, right? Just that yearning to be teaching, learning first, right? And then sharing that knowledge with others. And um, 
I wanted to ask you if, if if you had not had family in Phoenix, do you think you would have ended up at the University of Arizona? You know, mom and dad were a little nervous no. letting you go yeah. far away. Yeah, no, 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 no. Um, you know, I might have shared with you, I was offered, a, this is a typical first generation story, right? Um, my teachers and counselors in school helped me apply for colleges. My parents wanted me to go, which was important, but after that they had no idea how to do any of it. So I was lucky that I was a good student. Academically, I was like straight-A student. So people pay attention to you when you're a straight-A student. Um, and they encouraged me to apply to away schools. And one of the schools I got into on a full scholarship was Cornell University. My parents had no idea, and I didn't really understand the significance of going to Cornell versus going to the local CUNY school, right? And um, they said, no, you can't go away. You know, we want you to go to college, we'll buy you a car, but you can't go away. And um, I did that for my first year and about, I you know, I commuted by car and about halfway through the year, I just said, I can't do this for four years. I'm worried, you know, between traffic and being in tears because I can't find a parking spot when I get to school. Um, this isn't the way four years is supposed to be. So I applied to University of Arizona again because we at least had family and I liked the program at that state school. And then I got enough scholarships and financial aid that um, it was the first time I kind of stood up to my folks and said, I'm going mm. and I don't have to ask you to support me to go. Wow. I, I could do this financially on my own. But obviously I wanted their moral support and I think my father was just really angry at me yeah. well, for three and a half years <laughs> <laughs> while I was away and then of course I finally came back it's right? always but, interesting um, some parents do, they just don't want that separation from their children exactly and oh, yeah, yeah. And for and, women to leave the house right to not live at home until the day you're married yeah for in, in Italian families and many families. So we say Italian, but and how many? A I lot. mean, we hear the same thing with Latinx families. We hear the same thing in so many traditions. Yes, yes. Right? There's that commonality again. It doesn't necessarily matter yes. the culture. Um, we're going to go into our, our next break. Stay with us, and I'll be back with Ann Prisco, president of Holy Family University. And stay with us for our watch team. We'll be right back. Now, the women to watch, military watch. Hi, I'm Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President of Military Affairs at Comcast, NBC Universal. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. According to research by the Army University Press, many American military veterans face challenges with digital equity, especially since the onset of COVID-19 pandemic. 
In 2020, the Department of Veteran Affairs saw a 1,000% increase in telehealth appointments. Access to the internet is a crucial part of our daily lives. That's why Comcast launched Lift Zones, which are Wi-Fi connected safe spaces in community centers across the country that serve not only veterans, but also students, seniors, and many others. In recognition of National Veterans and Military Families Month, Comcast has recently partnered with military community organizations to help advance digital equity. Some of these organizations include the Paralyzed Veterans of America, the Salvation Army, Operation Military Family, and many homeless veteran shelters, with more launching in the coming weeks and months ahead. In addition to free connectivity, Comcast is also donating thousands of dollars and hundreds of computers to help maintain these spaces and ensure that veterans and their families can access the services they need most, like telemedicine, their VA benefits, workforce development, and educational resources. Lift Zones are a part of Comcast's latest initiative, Project UP, which is our national $1 billion commitment to reach 50 million people over the next 10 years with the tools, resources, and skills needed to succeed in a digital world. Comcast donations will help veterans access technology integral for the career advancement and social connection. To learn more about our company's commitment to the military community, please visit military.comcast.com. Hi, Sue Rocco here, host of Women to Watch. Are you a fan of the show? If so, be sure to sign up for our podcast at womentowatch.net so you never miss a show and can listen on your own time. That's women, the number two, watch.net. N-E-T. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome back. I'm joined by Dr. Ann Prisco, the president of Holy Family University here in Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, you're it's interesting to me, again, your your love of teaching, your wanting to teach. Um, and yet when you graduated, you had to take a job in uh, a financial aid office at Fordham. First of all, how disappointed were you that you couldn't get that teaching job right out of school? Oh, very disappointing. Because again, you know, we all think we have this plan and we major in something and we're going to graduate and this is what we're going to do for our life, right? Right, right. Um, and as we said, I love school. I played school after school. I mean, I just, I, I love the whole teaching learning experience. Um, and so I was really disappointed. And, you know, of course, anyone that I knew that could try and help me and they might back and this, my high school teachers were really upset because they wanted me to be in a high school teaching and and so they they even tried we couldn't um but then you know you quickly have to rebound it's like well i gotta pay rent i gotta make a living um you know what else could i do and i had worked in the financial aid office as a work study student the whole time i was at the university of arizona so i knew the basic stuff i was on financial aid myself um and it was an entry-level position so um did you move home and at that time were you living at home oh or? yeah okay oh yeah so I went back home, um, and eventually, I, that was the other thing. Eventually, I moved out, much to the chagrin of my father, because I wasn't married yet, but I didn't want to get my own apartment. Um, so yeah, it was it was hard, and I think the first year while I was doing financial aid, I always had it in my head that when openings happened in teaching, that I would still go back to being a te- to 
faculty, you know, not faculty, teacher in a high school. Right. Um, but it was also over that year that I started realizing, oh, I kind of like this work. I'm good at it. I never thought I'd want to be behind a desk, but I get to help people go to school. And this is like important work, too. So um, I'm going to stick with this. And you were just, you were good at, at really good at math and with numbers and and eventually economics, which I think helped. I didn't know that I would be okay doing administrative work. And once I realized financially was actually a profession, mm. I thought, excuse me if my voice is a little crackly. I thought, okay, what kind of skill set am I going to need if I'm going to do this work? And at that time, I was considering even going to law school. Okay. So I thought I was going to go to law school because I thought it would be an interesting intellectual exercise, not because I wanted to be a lawyer. Or I should get an MBA, and Fordham had both of those programs. Okay. So I ultimately decided to go for the MBA, and I got an MBA in finance. Right. To help me with, you know, I took business law, I took management courses. So it helped me on the administration side. Yeah. You know, you talk about... Um, Within six years at Fordham, you describe it as hitting a wall. What happened? What what was it that, you know, you just were not um, feeling fulfilled? Okay, and just for clarification, I actually was at like three different schools. So I moved up quite quickly in financial aid. So like from a bureaucracy sort of step up. Right, right. I went from being um, an assistant director of Fordham to a director of financial aid at St. Francis College. I was 25, so I was pretty young as a director. Everyone in the office was older than me. All my peers were older than me at the school. and then when I was about 28, I, after six years, I said, you know what? I really always wanted to teach. What am I doing? Um, and I was fortunate enough to start as an adjunct at St. John's University. And then um, they offered me a full-time spot. So that's how I ended up switching over into academics. Um, you, you continually, one of the things when I look at your career path, you just continually moved up. You know, and moved up, but yeah. sideways, backwards, <laughs> up again, right? I always say there's nothing. And this is what I think is so important to tell young people. They think somehow we have this plan, right? Yep. And you get through college and then you know what you're going to do and you're just going to do that and your life sort of works out. And what I always tell everyone is you have to be okay with going with what you got and your intuitions telling you and be willing to take those alternative paths because if I hadn't been open to them none of the things that kind of led to where I ended up would have ever been anything I would have predicted Mm. so you have to be open so you know Oprah calls it calls it you know finding your voice or pursuing your dreams Um, Michelle Obama talks about becoming because I really do think it's about becoming I you know one of the things when people, and you talk about finding your voice, and I think we're all still doing that. We always do that along the way. So that sometimes when someone says pursue your dreams, it's like I almost want to say, like, well, which dream and, and, and what day? Because, yes. right? It's yes. like, and we say that to young people, but it's like, what are they even dreaming yet? How do they even know what to dream and imagine their lives can be? Many times we just have to take it a step at a time and see where it goes. Yeah. Oh, and I agree with right? that. Yes, so much. Yes. And it's it, the finding the voice and the coming. Um, but you're never done. 
I mean, and I hate to say it, I don't want young people to feel, but you're like, you're always figuring this out, right? When people say, what do you, you know, I'm still figuring out what I want to be when I grow up because there's always going to be something else. So what's the next thing that I'm curious about or want to do with my time? And that's all part of the, the developing as a person, right? It's exactly and, and right. And in my case, you know, I loved school. So for me to go back to school, I mean, I went back for my PhD. I was 38 and I graduated. I was 43. But, you know, I was 43 and now I had a PhD and my kids were eight and nine years old. So yeah. great. Now what? Yeah, well, maybe the question is the next thing. Yeah, the question instead of asking anyone or especially children, you know, what what do you want to be when you grow up? What is the dream? It should be, you know, what what is pulling you at this moment in time? Right. Yeah. So it's more about today. Um, And you mentioned you you have an MBA, a Ph.D. Do you see more education to master so, so when when you say education to master, always class. In other that, words, yeah, class. Do you I don't know that it's necessarily classes, right? Yeah. So, as a professional, one of the things I should add is professional associations have been critical to my whole life, and I would have never known that because I never knew anything about a professional association until I started working in financial aid. And I got to go to the first state, New York State Financial Aid Administrators Association meeting. I was like, oh, wow, there's people all over the state who do this job. And there's all these rules and regulations we follow and we talk about together. And this is a body of work. I didn't know what that was. And, you know, in terms of a professional association, and that was part of what drew me to the work is there was it wasn't just that I was a I was doing a job at Fordham. I, this was a professional position that all higher ed institutions needed. So there was yep. a whole world out there of understanding that. Yeah. Um, and and then I, the educate. Are we running out oh, of time? You, let me. Yeah. Can I stop you right there? We'll pick it up when we come back. We have to go into our last sure. break. Stay you with us it. for our watch team, and I'll be back with Ann Prisco. Women to watch. Sports watch. Hey, everybody, this is Dr. Jen Welter, and you are listening to Sports Watch. It is a lot of pressure because, you know, as I say, um, it, it's starting to be trendy now to hear women say, oh, the first and not the last, right? But I've been living in the space of first for well over seven years now, right? Being the first woman to play in men's pro football, all that stuff. And What's challenging about that is the reason why it's so important to say first and not last is because you as the first do not want to be the reason why you are also simultaneously the last. We had a girl once, but dot, dot, dot. And this is why that door is firmly closed for all of those who might try and, you know, enter this place in this space thereafter. And that is a very scary and very tough position to be in, right? And so that's why it is so important to be first and to be good so that there is a second, third, and fourth. And so I always say that that there is pressure, but having played for a very long time on the Dallas Diamonds, which was my football team, um, I would look at it and to say, like, if they knew what we would become, they never would have put us under so much pressure. 
because a diamond is a direct result of pressure. Follow me and all my adventures, or you could say misadventures, on Welter47 on Instagram or at jwelter47 on Twitter. Now, more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome back. I'm joined by Ann Prisco, president of Holy Family University. And, you know, um, Ann, I could do a whole show on just education in general and where we're headed and what's different today from um, university experience, you know, back in the 80s. Um, but one of the things that's always of interest on this show is is girls and, and women going into the fields of STEM. And I wanted to ask you first, are you seeing more girls enrolling in those classes at Holy Family than from years prior? Yes, absolutely. I mean, generally, we know that there are more women attending higher education than men across the board in the United States. Um, And where they're majoring in is definitely starting to, it's shifting, and that's, I think we all agree, is a very good thing. So the number of students who are majoring in pre-med and straight bio Um, Nursing is still, you know, I encourage guys who might be interested. Nursing's a great field, and and only 10% of the students and the nurses tend to be male. So it's a great opportunity for males to join a field where they're much needed, and and then for women to be in the computer sciences. And, you know, we're starting a gaming major, and we're going to have eSports. And I love the fact that, you know, the, the female students go toe-to-toe with the guys when it comes to comp- competing on, on games and video games. And um, and in the labs, our stu- you know, female students tend to do very well with lab work. Um, and in engineering, if you think about what engineering is, it's process. Computer, like computer science, much of it is about process. And... Um, I don't want to stereotype, but I do find that women just tend to have those kinds of skills, just mm. tend to think that way. So um, they're naturally um, take to these subject areas when they're encouraged to explore them. Yeah. Talk about your goal to better serve the changing demographics in the city of Philadelphia. Sure. Well, um, as we've talked about, I mean, almost my whole career, I've been at minority-serving institutions, first-gen institutions, students um, that require a lot of financial aid to go to school. And um, for me, I'm paying it forward, right? That's the kind of student I was. And if I had all these opportunities, I'd like to pass them on and give them to other people. There's, But there's more than that. I think there's great value in being in diverse settings. Um, You know, I've almost forced myself at times in my life to move and experience something different or be in a diverse setting when I felt that I wasn't stretching and learning enough. So I love when we have the opportunity to be in a diverse environment because that's truly how we learn from each other. If if I said to you, Anne, you know, if you could wave a magic wand, you're you're new to this role. wave a magic wand over Holy Family University, what would be the first thing you'd want to change or add or see come to fruition? Change at the university or the perception of the university? Well, either. Something that you want to implement or... Go ahead. Yeah, because one of the things that... um, 
And, you know, I'm a big advocate of education. So you're never good. You're always going to hear me say, go to school, learn something. It doesn't matter what school you go to. Just make sure you keep learning. Um, and given that I've spent quite a bit of my higher ed career in um, faith-based institutions and specifically Catholic, one of the things that um, I have to keep reminding myself because and us at these Catholic institutions is that we have to remind everyone that being Catholic means we accept and we respect everyone and we want our campuses to be diverse populations. So my biggest message right now in Philly especially is like we want Holy Family to represent the diversity of Philadelphia because you're going to work with these people when you, when you graduate, right? You're going to be in these communities. How wonderful to get to be in a classroom and learn from each other and get comfortable and interact with each other. You're going to be a much more effective manager, worker, employee in whatever setting, teacher, whatever setting, nurse, caring for other people, a psychologist, right? You know, um, our how- listeners, um, and some, many of our listeners are not here in Philadelphia. They're from across the U.S., and they might not um, understand that. Holy Family is in what's considered the northeast of Philadelphia, and it's a community that has been historically, um, you know, a very similar one demographic. Yes, and so that's the institution's more dem- more demographically diverse. So as of yeah. right now, about a third of our students, um, you know, the term students of color, meaning they're um, black or Latinx, so about a third of our population identifies as black or Latinx. So so that and um, so that adds, you know, that helps us in terms of again, mixing it up. I you Mix know, it, I yeah. always I love to joke. I say I love a mosh pit. I want a little bit of everybody here cuz that's how we learn from each other. I don't know if you want a mosh pit at the at the university. That can get a little rowdy. <laughs> No, that's but I love right. that. Getting rowdy is okay too. Yeah, that's good. Um, we just have a minute left, in and and you know you're a mom, and that's always another a whole other dimension of your life. Um, you have two sons. Tell me how you know in this crazy world where you know we just hear the along with the good news, we hear a lot of bad news every day. Tell me what. How do you manage your um, anxiety and your worry? Um, in general, being a mom? Oh, boy. Yeah, and it never ends, right, Sue? I mean, my sons no. are both in their early 30s, but it never ends. Um, but I think more holistically, as a person who, you know, I have a school with 3,200 students and 600 employees, and, and I have family, and I have uh, extended family and friends, so one of the things maybe I will add, and how do I take care of myself, which I think is really important because we talk about it, but you really have to do it, is over the years I've always found a way to have maintained some sort of meditation and exercise practice. So even if it means 10 minutes I sit still and I meditate, I practice transcendental meditation whenever I can. I've done yoga since I was in high school, so way before it was cool and trendy I was doing that. And I ran. So people would say to me, well, how do you do this? And I said, well, be honest, I just get up earlier to fit some of this stuff in. But it's hard to prioritize yourself. And I don't, you know, and sometimes we know we have to do it, but we can't take care of everybody else if we don't take care of ourselves. Yeah, it's a great women. I think it's just so hard. Absolutely. We always put everybody else first. Yeah. It's a great way to end the show. They're taking care of, you know, your physical self will always help 
the emotional right. and mental and well-being. Your, right, and your, right, right, and yeah. your mental self, too. Because if we don't stay centered, we know, you know, I know on days when I'm a little short-tempered or I, I just haven't rested enough or taken or eaten right, right? Yeah. It's like, yep. oh, did you eat lunch? Maybe that's why I'm cranky at 3 o'clock. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, listen, Ian, we're at the end of the show, and I thank you so much for taking time to, to be on. Um, thank you. Thank you, Sue. Thanks, thanks for your show. Um, Thank I think oh. it's really an important and wonderful opportunity for men and women to listen. Correct. That is it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thank you for listening. And stay tuned next week for my interview with Laurie Ann Ainsworth, the CEO of the Branson Center for Entrepreneurship. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.